Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, do I have housekeeping today? I don't think so. Today I'm speaking with Richard Dawkins. Richard really needs no introduction on this podcast, but please note that he has a new book out titled Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide. In this conversation, we mostly take your questions, and we start by discussing the strangeness of the gene's eye view of the world. We then move on to the limits of Darwinian thinking when applied to human life. We talk about his concept of the extended phenotype and mimetics. We look at how ideologies act as meme complexes. We talk about whether consciousness might be an epiphenomenon and therefore might not have been evolved under selective pressure. And then we talk about psychedelics and meditation. I actually lead Richard in a guided meditation, and the effects of that you can hear for yourself. And I'll have something more to say in my afterward. So now, without further delay, I bring you Richard Dawkins. Be you still, be you still, trembling heart. Remember the wisdom out of the old days. Him who trembles before the flame and the flood and the winds that blow through the starry ways, let the starry winds and the flame and the flood cover over and hide, for he has no part with the lonely majestical multitude. What poem is that? It's an early one. It's from oh. The Wind Among the Reeds, I think. Well, uh, that was a wonderful reading and, <laughs> uh, and, and the perfect sound check. I am here with Richard Dawkins. Richard, thanks for joining me again on the podcast. Oh, thank you very much, and thank you for coming to the Biltmore Hotel rather yeah. than making me go to your studio. Which this, I is, I this, have is, done. this is old school. I, yeah. I, uh, I love it. So, you know, you, you and I have done a bunch of events together. Yes, I hope we haven't run out of things to talk about. I worry about that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, so in the interest of, of not running into that problem, I decided to go out on social media and ask for questions. And this is, oh. you know, this is the, that's the perfect algorithm because I can, I know what kinds of questions we've hit in the past. And uh, this simultaneously gets us what our respective audiences want to hear. And, and I, I have no fear that we're going to cover the same territory in the same way again. Okay, well, so. I hope one or two of them may have seen my new book. Maybe not, maybe too recently out. I don't know. So let, let's just mention the new books just so that we, uh, we've done that. The new book is Outgrowing God. Outgrowing God, yes. Yeah. And this is, this is for teenagers, right? Yes. It's sort of, um, uh, quite a lot of complaints have been that it's just like the God delusion. It actually isn't just like the God delusion. It's, it's different. And it's, it's sort of designed for teenagers, yes. And, and we can obviously spend as much time or as little time on these questions as we want and, and open any doors that they suggest to us. But um, the first... Uh, Frivolous question is, and this this surprises me. Uh, this means nothing, but do you realize that the most prominent atheists are all Aries, right? So you're an Aries, I'm an Aries, Hitch was an Aries, Dennett is an Aries, Matt Dillahunty is an Aries. The great uh, film director Otto Preminger was once approached by a starlet on on the set of one of his films. Uh -huh. She said, "Oh, gee, Mr. Preminger, what sign are you?" And he said. I am a do not disturb sign. <laughs> That's my attitude towards astrology. Right. Well, I guess Aries don't believe in astrology. <laughs> so the first question, which I think was, will set us on a nice path. It won't preempt everything else. But 
This is somebody who clearly is exasperated with the prospect that we might focus exclusively on atheism or bashing religion. And uh, he says, for goodness sake, get him talking in detail about the gene's eye view of natural selection, the extended phenotype, the arguments surrounding group selection, and punctuated equilibrium. The way mimetics has, rather ironically, taken on a life of its own, and so on. Not just God, for God's sake. So this covers a lot of ground, and I I do want to do those topics justice. So let's. I think people are are so casually aware of the revolution that has been wrought in our thinking, based on on our understanding of Darwinism, and that was it was really crystallized in your book, The Selfish Gene, but it has kind of receded into the background of our thinking. And it, 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 is, it is such a strange view of the mechanics of things and, and the logic of things. And so I, I, maybe let's just spend a little time okay. talking about the nature of replication. I mean, I, I like to think if it has receded into the background, that's because it's simply accepted, which among professional biologists of the sort of field type, it has. I mean, yeah, no, I'm accepted. thinking the general public that has kind of and lost even the sight general, of how yes, strange Yes, even it perhaps is. The, the general public. It's not, well, I suppose it is a bit strange, and it sort of is a turning on its head of the, well, what used to be the more orthodox view. Darwin saw natural selection at the level of the individual. Mm. So he thought of individuals as competing with each other within the species. He was always a within-species competition. And he was, of course, aware that survival is only a means to the end of reproduction. And uh, his other great book, well, one of his other great books, The Descent of Man, is largely about sexual selection. So Darwin was thoroughly aware that success at reproduction was also vitally important. And Mm. any hereditary tendency to be, for example, sexually attractive or good at competing with members of your own sex would also be be favoured. But Darwin didn't have gene language. Uh, He had no concept of the particulate gene which Mendel introduced. And that particulate view of genetics was actually essential to natural selection, because as was pointed out in Darwin's own time, if genetics was blending, as everybody in the 19th century except Mendel thought, if we, if it, we were all a kind of mixture of our father and our mother, mm. then variation would disappear as the generations went by. Each generation would be more uniform than the previous one, in which case there would be no variation left for natural selection to work on. This was actually advanced as an argument against natural selection. Actually, of course, it's an argument against manifest facts because we don't get more alike as the generations go by. Mendel solved that problem, but Darwin didn't realize it. I don't think Mendel realized it properly. And it wasn't until the neo-Darwinian synthesis of the 1930s, that it was realized that actually natural selection is all about genes changing their frequency. So some genes become more frequent in the population, others less frequent in the population. That's what it's all about. I suppose all that I did really was to take that neo-Darwinian view and put it in a more, slightly more poetic way and say that that means that the individual is just a vehicle for carrying genes around and passing them on. And it's temporary. I called it a throwaway survival machine. Right. 
that's the, the strange idea, what you called it strange, and that, that is a bit strange, I suppose, that, that, that I, I call them a robot survival machine. An, an individual organism is, is a device for passing on genes. The selfish gene is quite largely about not selfishness. It's often misunderstood because of the title as being about selfishness or even an advocacy of selfishness. It's actually mostly about altruism. Yeah. The selfish gene explains altruism at the individual level. Right. But if you take a gene's eye view of human life, many strange things happen. First, you see that there's a logic by which certain genes would have been selected for and the behaviors they would, they would encode would be grandfathered into the human condition. And yet evolution can't see most of what we care about. The logic of evolution is anything that has allowed these specific replicators to perpetuate themselves has been selected for, right? So, so we, we are here to spawn and to ensure that our progeny successfully spawn. And I don't know, I mean, what, what, at what, what age do you think historically evolution ceases to care about us? I guess grandparents are still oh, valuable. Oh, so. there's no sudden cutoff. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a gradual yeah. process. But the, the, older, the, uh, the, the older an animal is, the more likely it is already to have reproduced. Right. <laughs> and so we're all yeah. descended from ancestors, most of whom reproduced when they were relatively young. Yeah. A few, 20, of whom, yeah. A few may have been reproduced when they, when they were old. And this, of course, is why we age, because, because we're, we're, we're descended from, from young ancestors. And very often, whatever it took to be successful when you were young made you actually more likely to die. And this, this is especially true, of course, of sexual selection, where brilliantly colored male birds, say, are more likely to propagate genes for being brilliantly colored, but then dying because right. brilliant colors <laughs> attract, found and attract predators yeah. just as much as they attract females. And that's an extreme case, but, it, but that's the sort of model for the Darwinian theory of aging. Right, right. So, but th there's still something about the extended family that would have been selected for I me. Mean, you, th you would think grandparents are good for oh, something yes. Oh, yes. in helping to um, ensure that. That's right. And, and, and in, in those species where grandparents can, well, there, there, there may be a kind of changeover point where when you get to a certain age, you can do your genes more good by caring for grandchildren right. than you can by having more, more children. It wouldn't, that, again, wouldn't be a, a sudden cutoff point, but that probably is true of humans and a number of other species, perhaps. But if we're talking about running viable governments and societies and democracies, capitalism, pursuing scientific interests, building technology that doesn't destroy us, these are things that obviously are, are parasitic on cognitive traits that have been evolved, but evolution can't really see these details. No, that's right. I mean, I think that so much of our human life is, has gone beyond natural selection. Natural selection put us in the world in the, the way that we are, and our brains and our bodies are designed by natural selection to survive under wild conditions in Africa. And we've now moved beyond that. And so what, what we think of as successful in our society has, is really sort of pretty much left, left natural selection behind. Yeah, so to, not to put too fine a point on it, but this is a, an observation that several of us have made in various contexts. 
if you were going to take a rigorously genes eye view of the human circumstance, certainly as a man, the thing you would want to do most, the thing that you would find most fulfilling in life, the thing to which you would purpose more or less every day is to donate your sperm to a sperm bank yes. so that you could have yeah. tens of thousands yes. of children for whom you have no financial exactly. or resource responsibility. And, and the, the fact that sperm donors are actually paid is thoroughly un-Darwinian and right. is, is, a, is a wonderful example of how far we have actually advanced. Yeah. It's not that surprising because natural selection cannot build into our brains a kind of cognitive awareness of what our, what our genes, so to speak, would want. All it can do is build in rules of thumb which would work under natural conditions. And so a desire for sex makes perfect sense because that, for the whole of history, the whole of, I mean, evolutionary history, has, has, has tended to lead to reproduction. But a desire to donate your sperm is something quite different. It's, it's, it's not to see that technology. Not, I mean, yeah. Natural selection can't see that. Yeah. And there have been a few notorious cases of doctors who've been substituting their own sperm for, yeah. for, yeah. for, for donors and things like that. But, but it, it is, to a, to a naive Darwinian, it is a surprising fact that sperm donors have to be paid. A naive Darwinian would think that they would pay to donate their sperm. Right, yeah, and pay quite a lot. Yes. So, okay, so let's just talk about what genes are for a moment. So genes are a kind of memory. They're, they're a kind of encoding of knowledge in the sense that, and you know, stop me if you think at any point this, these analogies break down, but I'm hearing echoes of David Deutsch here where it's knowledge as a kind of solution to a problem. It's a genetically inscribed solution to problems that our ancestors have successfully exactly. faced. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, mean, I have a chapter in uh, Unweaving the Rainbow called The Genetic Book of the Dead, which is sort of takes off from the, is it a Hindu cl- yeah. classic? The Tibetan Book of the Dead. T- t- yeah. The Tibetan Book of the Dead. Yeah. Sorry, Buddhist, yes. So, so um, The Genetic Book of the Dead, I see the, the, the genome, well, let's say the genes of a species, as a coded document describing ancestral worlds in which ancestors survived. That's, it's sort of, that's sort of true because they are a, a filtered subset of genes which have helped ancestors to survive. And in principle, it should be possible in su- at some future date for when technology has advanced for a knowledgeable geneticist to read the genome mm. of an individual and, and actually read off a description of the worlds in which the ancestors of that animal lived. Right. To a lesser extent, I think perhaps it's easier, you can read the body of the animal. I mean, if you, if, I, I like to think that if you took a whole lot of water-dwelling animals, say m- mammals, so it would be otters, seals, whales, water shrews, marsupials, s- swimming animals and things, they'd all have webbed feet, say, for example, mm-hmm. except whales. And so that's an obvious one. But if you, if you actually made a list of characteristics of water-dwelling mammals and compared it with, say, desert-dwelling mammals, you'd find a whole lot of things that all the water-dwelling ones have in common, including probably some biochemical ones, some genetic ones. And so that's part of the description. The genetic book of the dead describes water or describes desert. 
Right. And I, I, right. one day, maybe I'll, maybe I'll even write a book called The Genetic Book of the Dead, trying to flesh out this, this idea. Yeah, and, and, and of course, it could also look forward prospectively to situations which we, now to take the human case, are not well adapted to That's right. To I mean, the, the Genetic Book of the Dead has always got to be a description of the past. And it helps the animal to survive to the extent that the future resembles the past, yeah. which on the whole it does. I mean, if, 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 if the world were totally capricious such that you could not predict the future on the basis of the past, then natural selection wouldn't work. But nature doesn't vary capriciously as the years go by. It, on, the, on the whole, tomorrow mm. is pretty similar to yesterday. Actually, there was a, a specific question that touches on that point that someone asks, why do we need vaccinations or acquired immunity to diseases at all? Why can't the mother pass on her immunity to her offspring? Wouldn't that be an enormous evolutionary benefit? So we have acquired immunity because they're on the assumption that the, the environment does change enough that that's the best algorithm to run. Yes. I suppose the immune system is a kind of short-term, moment-to-moment substitute for natural selection. Natural selection works over generations and right. equips the animal to deal with circumstances that arise perennially, or at least over, over a long period. The immune system is all about equipping the animal, adapting the animal to insults that attack it during its own lifetime from moment to moment. There are always new epidemics, always, always new viruses cropping up. Right. So that's what the immune system is about. And, and vaccination is, as of course, sort of is preparing it, the immune a system. gaming of that, yeah. But it, it would seem good to be immune to everything that your mother had encountered. It would. I suppose we, are in, we, we tend to be immune to everything that most of our ancestors have ever encountered, but just, just our mother. We don't seem to have a mechanism for passing on the particular. If the mother's yeah. had chickenpox, we, we don't inherit an yeah. immunity to chickenpox. Yeah. One thing that's framing this part of the conversation for me is I, I watched your somewhat stifling conversation with Brett Weinstein, uh, who I greatly admire, who I've, I've done many events with, but he had a kind of axe to grind with you around, if not group selection, something he was calling lineage selection, and more broadly speaking, a sense that evolutionary thinking should cover many of the details of human life, like you know, war making, genocide, nationalism, to a degree that, that, that you were disinclined to, it, to extend it. And also just this notion that you know, religion should certainly be considered an extended phenotype. Mimetics generally should be considered an extended phenotype. And I'm just wondering what the, the I mean, I, I can't do a good impersonation of Brett for this conversation, but I'm wondering just what are the, what are your concerns there and what are the limitations in, in Darwinian thinking when, when we're talking about high level human social yes, phenomenon and, um, and psychological phenomenon? Well, first of all, I, I, I hugely admire Brett Weinstein's stand at that ridiculous university that he used mm. to be a member of. Evergreen, yeah. Ever, Evergreen, yeah. yes. I mean, he's a real hero for standing up against that nonsense. The extended phenotype, I think, is often misused. The idea of the extended phenotype mm. is often misused, and I think... We, we should remind people what a phenotype yes, I is. Yes, should. And... A f- phenotype is that which the genes engineer in a body 
which not which in a Darwinian sense would help the genes to survive. So wings are part of the phenotype of, of, of genes that help the genes survive and, and behavior patterns and crests and sharp talons and sharp teeth and things. So we normally think of genes program bodies to develop phenotypes. Phenotypes help bodies to survive and that helps the genes that built them survive. That's the normal way it happens. Mm. And genes do it by the processes of embryonic development causing the body to develop the necessary phenotypes. The extended phenotype is phenotype which is outside the body in which the gene sits. And my classic examples of this are animal artifacts, the things like birds' nests, where right. the nest, especially a complicated nest like that of a weaver bird, obviously an adaptation. I mean, it's just like an organ. It, it, it's, it's beautifully shaped for a particular purpose, beautifully shaped, for example, a long tubular nest to prevent snakes getting in. That is a perfectly good phenotype. Right. The, but it's the, not the genes, part of the, the body. Yes, the, the genes are producing that nest. The genes are producing yes. that. And they're producing it. They're still doing it via embryology. But the embryology then, as it were, reaches outside the body in the form of behavior, in this case, nest building behavior. Mm. But that's only a, a, a yet one more step in the embryonic chain of causation. The embryonic chain of causation begins with DNA influencing proteins, and that influences something else, which influences something else, cell division neuron production in the in the brain which has the eventual consequence of causing the bird to build a, ne a nest of a particular shape mm. so there's just this chain of causation starting with dna protein and going through various complicated steps in embryology and then the final steps are outside the body so right. i call it the extended phenotype well then the idea is generalized to well, for example actually, I, I just want to yeah, pause here yeah. I, at the risk of derailing you i want to pause here to close the door to a, uh, a certain species of doubt that evolution can explain the, the diversity of life that we see. So now, now I'm just, just closing the door to the creationists and the intelligent designers for the moment. Because one of the concerns is that with any, when you take any example of phenotype, you take a bat's wing, for instance, evolution could not have produced a bat's wing de novo, you know, oh, no. by functional bat, bat's yeah. wing. What you need is some incremental path yeah. from no wing at all yes. to a bat's wing, yes. and each increment has to survive the, the logic yes. of evolution. It has to be useful yeah. and lead to differential success. So you have to imagine here to explain any speciation and any, any path of, by which we have reached the diversity of life that we see, you have to explain how each increment, the first little bump that became the, the wing, how that in itself was useful. And many people just throw up their hands there and say, well, there's clearly no way you can do that. So there must be some other explanation. Yes, thank you for reminding people of that. I mean, that, that is, of course, very important. And, and, and of course, evolution has to take whatever is there and modify it. So it is, it's not like a little bump that appears in this case. It's an already existing arm. Yes. In the case of insects, it probably was a little bump. Right because that's not using an existing limb. But yes, you're, you're of course, right well, about with that. A, with a bat, it's, it's literally the hand. Yeah, right? it, right. and there's a membrane stretched right. between the fingers, right. which is not difficult to engineer embryologically because in the embryo, there already is an, a, a membrane between the fingers and, and actually it's, it's carved away. There's a kind of mm. sculpture process whereby the membrane is removed. All that needed to happen in bats is that the, that sculpting process didn't happen. The membrane stayed 
And of course, the fingers get hugely long. Yeah. Pterosaurs do it differently. They, they just have one big finger. Right. And, and they stretch that between the legs. And birds do it differently again. But in every case, it makes use of what's already there, and modifies what's already there, rather than starting de novo, which is what a human engineer would do. Right. Throw the, we start with a clean design on the, on the drawing board. Yeah. But I was saying about the extended phenotype. Well, but actually, so before yeah. we get there, yeah. so, what, so what is the argument that some non-functional precursor wing would nevertheless have been oh, useful enough. Y- yes, I mean, this is, a, this is a favorite problem. I mean, what, what's the use of half a wing? Right. There, there, there are a large number of animals that don't exactly fly, but slightly increase their, there's, for example, arboreal animals, um, squirrels, say, mm. who leap from branch to branch. And it's a dangerous process, le- leaping from branch to branch. And so any slight increase in flight surfaces, not really flight surfaces, but any slight increase in the surface area that's presented to the air will increase the distance that a squirrel can leap. The tail, the fluffy tail of a squirrel, acts as a sort of rudimentary aerofoil that increases the distance that a squirrel can jump to. Well, now flying squirrels, they're just squirrels, but they have a membrane between the forelimb and the hind limb, which started out, no doubt, as just a bit of membrane in the, in the armpit. Mm-hmm. We just slightly increased the, you know, it could just leap one foot further yeah. because of that. And then when that was there, could then next generation, perhaps next 10 generations, you could leap 10 feet further. So you, you have a, a steady gradient of improvement. Are there orthogonal gradients that could explain some of these intermediate forms like heat regulation or something that well that's been suggested for insects yes it's been suggested that in the insect they really did start by just bumps growing out of the thorax rather than modifying existing limbs and it has been suggested that originally these were thermoregulatory or were solar panels right and then when they got out to a certain size for their thermoregulatory function, then they then happened to act as aerofoils. And, mm. and so they then became wings. And insect wings are moved not by limbs, as I said, but by movements of the thorax. So the, the, the thorax is, is, there are muscles in the thorax that, that, that contract it in various ways, which cause these flaps to, 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 to go up and down. Interestingly, some insects flap their wings up and down with a separate neural command from the central nervous system saying up, down, up, down. Mm -hmm. But other insects have a kind of motor, sort of oscillating motor, where all that the central nervous system says is switch on or switch off. And the motor itself does a a rhythmic up, down, up, down, up, down, up, up, down. And the frequency of the oscillation is determined not by the central nervous system, but just by the harmonic properties of the um of the of the, the motor system yeah. yeah okay so back to the extended phenotype. yeah well the next step after the idea of a, of a artifacts after the idea of bird's nest say there are many cases where parasites manipulate their hosts to increase the chance that they will be propagated to the next stage of the of the uh, parasitic cycle so mm-hmm. flukes for example I usually have an intermediate host, which might be a, a snail or it might be a, a, an ant. And 
they need to get into their definitive host, which might be a sheep or a cow. And so in the case of the so-called brain worm in the ant, for example, the worm in the ant burrows into the brain of the ant and changes the behavior of the ant to make the ant more likely to be eaten by a sheep. It crawls up to the top of, a st of stems in the heat of the day rather than going down, in, down into the ground. So the parasite is a kind of puppet master which is manipulating the ant yeah. to get... Well, now, that to me is an extended phenotype because genes in the, in, the, in, the, in the worm have their phenotypic effect in ant behavior. Yeah, I think there... Isn't there some evidence that toxoplasmosis and some other organisms operate in mammals like ourselves and very likely in people in similar ways? Well, to, 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 make the, to, to make us more likely to pa pass it on. Yeah, yes. yeah modifying, yeah. modifying behavior. I um, mean, rabies is the classic example. Where yeah. the, the, the rabies virus actually makes rabid dog, for example, more likely to bite right. and froth at the mouth and pass on the, the, the virus when it, when, when it bites. It also makes the animal more likely to, to roam and wander far and wide rather than stick around at, at, at home, yeah. which then spreads the virus more more widely. So that's extended phenotype of a parasite. And then you can say, well, parasites don't always live inside their hosts. Cuckoos manipulate their hosts. A, cuck a cuckoo nestling. Yeah. Terrible bird. <laughs> yeah, terrible bird. Manipulates the host with, a, with beautiful adaptations. I mean, a, a supernormal gape and things like that. This is, again, manipulating the host behavior. It's the host behavior, the change in the host behavior is an extended phenotype of cuckoo genes. Genes that change host behavior are more likely to survive. Again, it works via cuckoo embryology. But the final stage in that chain of, of events in cuckoo embryology is to produce behavior mm. which seduces the host, the reed warbler, whatever it is, or the robin, whatever it is. And so that again is extended phenotype. And then the next, the final stage in my argument would be all bird song, all animal communication, where one animal manipulates another, you can think of as extended phenotypes. So a gene that changes in one animal has an extended phenotypic effect on another animal via a call, a song, a crest, a flash, a, a conspicuous signal. So my whole vision of animal signaling is, is a great network of extended phenotypes. Right. Okay, so before we talk about the, the prospect of something like religion or any other doctrine or institution being an extended phenotype for humankind, let's briefly talk about this other species of replicator, the meme, which is a, a term of your coinage, which has an importantly different connotation now, now that we've all well, spent our lives on social media. That's right, but, I mean um, but, the, but these are also, it's, it's, not, it's actually a decent analogy to, yes. to the memes. So I, I mean, I, I, memes. Wanted, I wanted to make the point that, that what matters is replication. In, uh, um, genes are consummate replicators, and they, and they achieve their replication success by manipulating bodies via the processes of embryology. But I wanted to make the point that any replicator could do that. Right. It doesn't have to be DNA. And of course, on other planets, it almost certainly isn't DNA if there is life on other planets, which there probably right. is. But then I said, well, maybe we don't have to go to other planets because maybe memes, maybe cultural replicators could be the basis of Darwinian selection. 
There certainly are cultural replicators, no doubt about that. I mean, things does, spread. Does it matter that they don't randomly vary? The, the mutation isn't. I don't think random. that matters, no. I mean, it, it incidentally happens to be true that genetic mutation is random, but even that is only random in the sense that it's not guided towards improvement. Right. But mutation is not random in other senses. Mutations are induced by cosmic rays, for example. That's non-random. But mutation is random in the sense that it's not... What do you mean it's non-random if it comes from cosmic ray bombardment? Well, it has a cause. It's predictable that, 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 that if, if, you, if you subject yourself to... to... But, but the specific base pair that's being targeted is, is random, presumably. That's true. Yeah. Yes, that, that's true. But what's more important is that it's random with respect to improvement. So there's no yeah. tendency for, for mutation to be, as it were, anticipating what's necessary for survival. It, it, it's random in that sense. Right. And the great majority of mutations are actually deleterious. Okay, so, but, so when we talk about memes, right? So now a meme is almost any cultural product, an idea. That, of, is, that is replicated. Yeah, that, that's that's yes. replicated. So but, it could be a, a, a clothes fashion or something like that, or a, a, a speech mannerism. Awesome. Which I use with disconcerting frequency. Do you? I never yeah. use it. <laughs> I've given up. I mean, it's such a wonderful word to mean what it really does mean. Right. Now yeah. it just means kind of okay. No, I'm part of the slide <laughs> yes. into yeah, yeah, degradation. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, language evolves. We, uh, but we have to accept I am that. an American. Well, this, yeah, yeah. This, this would be. Predictable. I mean, no, it's a good. It's a good case because language does evolve, and and so we have to accept that. Yeah, and I think there probably is some randomness, and not to say cosmic ray bombardment, that accounts for the changes in in speech patterns. But most memes, it seems to me, the changes in them are engineered at least with some forward thought as that to, doesn't as to matter. Survivor. Actually, no, it, so, yeah. do, it doesn't really matter. I mean, natural selection would still work even if mutation, ge genetic mutation was engineered. And, and of course it can be. We, yeah. we are now in the position to do that. Right. That's what genetic right. engineering is. Which I will talk about. So mm. the fact that the, the basis for the change, directed or not, you still have an environment where things are competing and there's differential success. And so the, the, the environment is providing a, a kind of selection mechanism. Exactly, yes. So memes, ideas, ways of doing things, really all of human culture and ideology, this is being continually produced and spread and going in and out of fashion. And so this is this do domain of memetics. And, and there literally are what are now called you know, memes on the internet, you know, graphics paired with text that spread on social media, that spread various ideas. I don't know, how, how do you feel about that appropriation? Well, I'm not particularly keen on that appropriation because it, it rather, I mean, they are a, a very specific example of a meme. Of a meme yeah. I would rather think about whether natural selection of, of a sort actually guides the, the spread of memes. And I like the, the idea of a meme complex or memeplex where, where something like, a religion like Roman Catholicism mm. could be regarded as a meme complex. Right. And individual memes might be the idea of life after death or the idea that you have to confess your sins or something. The virgin like birth, yeah. Virgin birth. And just like gene complexes are sets of genes which flourish in each other's presence. Right. And that I think is a, an extremely important idea in genetic evolution. 
So there might be something similar in meme complexes. Yeah, so there's a, there's a common fate to these various genes yes. and various memes. Yes, they're all, yes. They're all hitched together, yeah. That's right. And so if I, I like to think of, say, the meme, sorry, the gene complex of a, of a carnivore species like leopards, where you have carnivorous teeth, carnivorous eyes, carnivorous brains, carnivorous mm. limbs, and they all go together. And on the other hand, you have antelope, I mean, the, the, the herbivore prey, eyes, noses, limbs, etc., which go together. If you suddenly plonked antelope, an, an antelope gene into a, into a leopard gene pool, it probably wouldn't, wouldn't work. It wouldn't cooperate well with the other genes of the, of the leopard yes. gene oh, the, complex. Be a very skittish leopard. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The cowardly yeah. leopard. Cowardly leopard. And so a species is a collection of mutually compatible genes which go well together as opposed mm. to another species, which is complex of different genes. Well, I believe you might do the same kind of thing with meme complexes, but uh, the theory hasn't been really sort of worked out. Right. But I think it might be. Okay, so we have meme complexes, something like Roman Catholicism, and what was being urged upon you in your conversation with Brett, and I've seen this come up many times before, is that, something like Roman Catholicism should be, or, or religion in general, should be considered part of the extended phenotype of yes. human beings. I've never liked that. I've never liked, I think that's taking the idea of the extended phenotype beyond where it should be. And I think it detracts from people's ability to comprehend the idea of the extended phenotype. Extended phenotype is supposed to be a genetic effect which manifests itself outside the body in the same kind of ways, genetic effect ma manifests itself inside the body. And people have some, I don't think Brett does this, but people have sometimes said to me, isn't a building, like the building we're in at the moment, an extended phenotype? And I think that would only be true if, say, there were genes that caused architects to design a different kind of building. Mm. And there aren't. I mean, there's, 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 no, there's no gene that, that makes an architect more likely to make Gothic arches rather than Romanesque arches. So, so our, our, our mere survival dependence on buildings is not enough to... No, I don't it. think so, because variation in buildings is not under genetic control. Right. And, and I, I doubt very much that variation in, in religious habits is under genetic control. If it was, then you might make some sort of a case for talking about extended phenotypes, but it, it's not like that. And so I think that it's possible to push an idea too far. Mm. And I think that's what's going on here. So what, what uh, about the prospect that having religions led to differential success of various groups of well, human beings? Well, that's, and, that's quite a different idea. Yeah. And that's worth considering in its own right. And also it's what's worth considering in its own right is the idea that individuals having religions might survive better. Right. That's been suggested and might be true. And um, so this opens the door to what's been called group selection. Yes. At, at the, at and the I've never been a fan of group selection. Darwin himself was, it wasn't called group selection then. Darwin al almost always was talking about individuals surviving better in, within a species. But Darwin did, again in The Descent of Man, in one passage, talk about a kind of group selection where he suggested that 
groups of in, groups of humans who were had some kind of social cohesion who behaved well towards each other had altruism toward each other cooperation would be more likely to survive than groups that didn't and so that would be a form of group selection i suppose in some ways i prefer to compare that not to group selection but to species competition a bit like when the gray squirrel was introduced from america into britain as a sort of frivolous exercise we, we did that to you was that a good idea or a bad terrible idea terrible idea yeah. <laughs> and and it drove the red squirrel extinct huh. and so i think that's that would be a better analogy for a group like a, a group that say has a has a warlike aggressive god like yahweh or like some of the norse gods you you could make a case that having an a, a, a militaristic god maybe one who rewards martyrs in a martyr's heaven that kind of religion might spread as a kind of group effect as a kind of species effect an ecological competition effect right. but i call i would call that ecological competition rather than group selection i think we have because it's so let's just create a uh, an example let's say that hitler won the second world war and we are now living under the thousand year reich and everyone who's not a nazi is now dead so Nazism would have triumphed over all competing political ideologies. So that we, on some level, you can say, well, this is a a selective effect, right? This is you know, there were various competitors for political ways of thinking, and one has finally dominated yeah. and canceled all others. Yeah. But that doesn't seem to suggest an analogy to the replication model. I don't think of, it does. No, I don't think it does. I mean, slightly closer would be if, say, within any country, individuals who who espouse Nazi beliefs were more likely to survive than individuals who didn't. Mm -hmm. So there would be an individual differential survival effect, which probably would also be in the case. That would be a closer analogy to Darwinian selection, and we, we might do a kind of memetic analysis of that. Nazi memes survive better than anti-Nazi memes, for example. That 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 would be a, a case of memetics. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that might actually be the environment we're currently in on social media. <laughs> I, I forbear to comment on that. <laughs> so I, I guess one final question here. So there, are there outstanding questions in what is now called the neo-Darwinian picture that are significant challenges to the model? I mean, there are many people, and, and Brett, you know, frankly, is one of these people. There are many people speaking as though Neo-Darwinism, and perhaps you should actually define that term, is basically flawed in a way that should be troubling to biologists and public intellectuals. Yes, generally. I don't. I don't think that. I mean, I, in, in, any flourishing science will will change, of course. And um, Steve Gould was fond of saying that the, the, the modern synthesis is effectively dead, and I, I thought that was a rather irritating. Tempted, almost self-publicity. Well, um, he was irritating in in many ways, as well, it turns out. Okay, yes. Um, <laughs> so, but uh, what what is your uh, so first define neo Darwinism? Well, okay. I, neo Darwinism is the is the, the neo Darwinian synthesis was a, a a joint effort in the nineteen thirties, really. Of of I think above all, R. A. Fisher, J. B. S. Haldane, Sewell Wright, Ernst Meyer. Mm -hmm. 
Theodosius Dobzhansky, G.G. Simpson, and, and others. And it was seeing Darwinian evolution as changes in gene frequency in populations. That was the population genetic part of it. Seeing, well, the paleontological part of it would be seeing major macroevolutionary change as microevolution writ large. Right. So the geneticists were showing how from generation to generation you could get slight changes in gene frequency. And the paleontologists like Simpson was showing that such microevolutionary changes extrapolated over millions of years, tens, hundreds of millions of years, could produce changes from from fish to mammal. Mm. So the the this this movement of the 1930s and 40s, we're still in it. It hasn't really changed much. There'd been, I suppose, W.D. Hamilton with his analysis of altruism, kin-selected altruism, is one major advance of the 1960s and 70s. But, but we're still in the neo-Darwinian era. And you don't think there are gaping holes in the theory that that should keep people up No, I don't. I mean, there are, there are questions that remain to be answered. Uh, one of the big riddles is the evolution of sex, you know, what, 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 what sex is good for. Mm. And lots of the most distinguished neo-Darwinian theorists have grappled, grappled with that problem. The origin of the Darwinian process is, is still a bit of a mystery. How, how did the first replicator arise? And was it, or certainly wasn't DNA, actually. I mean, the first replicator would have been something else. Would have been RNA? Maybe. Oh. That, that's a good possibility, and that's one of the more fashionable ideas. But that is still in the realm of theory. It, it may never become settled because it's happened a long time ago and maybe impossible to, to repeat exactly what happened. We know the kind of thing it, it must have been. It, it was the origin of something self-replicating, mm. possibly RNA. And so what about epigenetics and the, the way in which they, this feature of our biology seems to suggest a, almost a quasi-Lamarckian kind of inheritance? Yes, this is a strange word, epigenetics, because actually, originally, it was just another word for the way we see embryology. I mean... Every, every cell in, in the mitotically, every mitotically reproducing cell in the body has the same genes. Right. And so yet only some of them are. all the genes that your brain cells That's right, have, yes. And, 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 and different genes like get, get, get turned on. And so the, the epigenetic environment of a, of a gene in, the, in, in, in a brain cell is different from that in a, in a, in a liver cell. And, and so that's epigenetics. The, the word has been hijacked fashionably recently mm. by people with, as you say, a kind of neo-Lamarckian bent to suggest that some of that epigenetic cytoplasmic environment in which some genes are turned on and others are not can get inherited to the next generation. And that mm. does seem to happen in some cases. So examples like the stress experienced by the mother with the infant yes. in utero, that yes. so that the, the, yes. the change in hormonal environment there can actually yes. create some durable effect on the, the expression of, of genes in the, yes. the, the baby. Yes, that, 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 that does seem to be, that there are a few rare cases like that. I, I don't think it's worth the attention that it's been given. I, I, I prefer to reserve the word epigenetics for the ordinary process of embryology and say, just occasionally, there may be 
epigenetic effects which do pass on to the next generation, maybe even to the grandchild generation, but it's not one of these things that goes on forever like true genetic mutation. So what, what is the current frontier of evolutionary biology? Is there, if you could pick one question you could get an answer to um, now, what would be the, on the top of your list? Well, molecular genetics is advancing at a huge rate and is exciting because in, in a way that would have delighted Darwin, I suspect, if he could have understood it, genetics has become digital and become a branch of computer science. And, mm -hmm. and it's really astonishing the way um, you can interpret the whole of genetics in a, in a sort of computer-like way. And so that's giving rise to all sorts of rapid advances, techniques of gene manipulation, things like that. So that's the sort of most fast-growing area. Remaining problems, as I say, the, the origin of life's a problem, sex is a problem, consciousness, how does, how does brain physiology give rise to the subjective sensation, qualia, mm. and this... Yeah. Now you're alighting upon my central interest. I know. I mean, and, the, and the, this baffles me in the way that I am not even sure what an answer would look like to that, to that sort of question. But, but I, I think it clearly does belong in the realm of biology. It, 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 it is a physical problem. It's not, it's not a, I mean, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a dualist. Mm. Well, one thing that concerns me about consciousness is that it seems conceivable to me that it's not doing anything that it's an epiphenomenon, which would seem to undercut any selective rationale for I, it. Yes, that's right. I mean, when T.H. Huxley considered this, he, he likened it to the, the whistle on a, on a steam engine, which, which right. just, just, just whistles and doesn't actually provide any propulsive power. Yeah, which, which is deeply counterintuitive to people. But when you think of, and, and this actually brings me to a topic that you, know, you and I haven't spoken much about and you know, I don't. Even, I don't know how much you know of my thinking in this area. That these are topics where I diverge pretty starkly from from our uh, friend and colleague uh, Dan Dennett in thinking about things like free will and know, the nature yes. of the self and consciousness. But it is obvious, you know, neurophysiologically, and I would ar also argue it can be obvious subjectively from you know, the first person side if you pay attention that everything that you're aware of, everything that you're doing, your thoughts and intentions and emotions and, and perceptions, it's all being generated unconsciously. And if consciousness is just a matter of information processing in the brain, which is, again, not proven, but, you know, that's a thesis, which... Um, it's got to be. It's got to be the which is, uh, you know, on very firm ground, if that's your, yeah. your supposition. If that is the case, then whatever consciousness is at the level of neural substrate in our case its cash value causally has to be at the level of neural substrate and so, yes. so which is to say that the first person side of it the feeling of it the qualia of it it isn't doing anything so much of what our minds are doing is going on in the dark at least apparently i mean in, in the sense that you can't subjectively inspect it you yes. you i'm talking to then there may be more to you than either of us realize, right? There may be something that it's like to be the information processing in your cerebellum right now, but I can't talk to that. No. And I, I, I have no, no, no knowledge of it either. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so if, if, when you survey everything you do have knowledge of subjectively, and you see that you can't know what you're going to think next until you think it, right? I mean, the thought just appears. If I ask you to think of 
a meal you enjoyed, right? Now you've had many meals and if you pay attention to what this process is like, right? So just think of a meal that you've enjoyed. Subjectively, this experience is you have various candidates for inclusion kind of vi- kind of percolating on the, the margins of consciousness. You'll think of, oh, that, you know, that steak I had in Dallas, that was good. Oh, but let's, you know, but there was an omelet in Paris that was also, and then you settle on one. So that's the conscious qualitative side of it. You thought of the steak, you thought of the omelet. And again, there were, there were a thousand other meals at least that you could have potentially thought of that did not appear at all. So there was some kind of quasi-Darwinian contest happening in the dark, and it promoted a few candidates. You can't subjectively know why you picked one versus the other. Right. You, you can go back and no. forth between no. them for, no. for an hour and a half, no. and you'll just finally stop on one. All of this is happening unconsciously. Yes. So what is consciousness doing? Quite. What's it doing? What's it for? To quote Monty Python on this kind of conversation, my brain hurts, mm. and I, I haven't... I can't think my way through that. I doubt that anybody else can, but that's no comfort. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, at one time I was rather drawn to Nick Humphrey's idea that of, the, of what he called the inner eye, that because we're so intensely social, we're a very, very social species, and one of the most important things we have to do is second guess what other individuals are going to do it's it's not like just the ordinary understanding sort of intuitive physics and knowing that if you drop something it'll fall in a social species what the other individual is going to do next is one of the most important things you have to do and it's very complicated and very difficult and humphrey's point is that by looking into yourself introspection you this helps you to second guess what your rivals or your sexual partners or, or children, whatever it is, hmm. predators perhaps even, are going to do. But I don't think that really gets at the philosophical. Yeah. Well, no, because it, again, the, the mental processes that accomplish that, the predictive model I might form about what you're going to do next is also proceeding in I the know. dark. I know. It's like, it's like my being able to follow the rules of grammar. You can do that without even knowing that there are rules of grammar once you learn a language. And so yes. detecting facial expressions yes. and eye gaze, yes. and all this is happening. Well, does it, does it help to proceed from the idea that everything we see is actually an internal model that we've constructed? Mm. So something like a, 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 a table like, like this, and, and we, we see the perspective and things. We have an internal model of a, t- of a table which we, which we construct and visual illusions like necker cubes, which have an, an ambiguous model, mm-hmm. more, the, the, the retinal image is compa- equally compatible to two alternative internal right. models. And so we are forced to choose one or the other. And what we actually do is alternate between them. Does that help to say that everywhere we go, we are perceiving internal models, which are updated by sense data, which are, which are being fed in all the time and which are, which are helping us to construct them or, or to even pull out of the filing cabinet, which of our repertoire of internal models we're, we're looking at. I, again, I don't really, I don't see any way in which you can come up with a form of words which answers your question 
mm. of why we actually need consciousness. It is possible that it is a spandrel, right? It yes, is, that, that like all Huxley's whistle. Yes, yeah, it that, is. That it is not not selected for because it isn't doing anything, and we just happen to get it at some point. Whether it, it, phylogenetically, we don't know how far down to push it, but let's say it started with you know anything more complex than a cricket, or maybe it's just mammals. So I don't know, but it, it's we just may live in a universe where a certain complexity of information processing is synonymous with the lights coming on for no good reason. And again, this is, this is subjectively mysterious because forget about crickets and forget about lower mammals. So much of what our own brains are doing seems not to be associated with consciousness. Of course, that, that's I mean, my, all, all of what our brains are yeah, doing. Yeah, so things can get very complex and still not be associated with qualitative, subjective point of view on the universe, or so it would seem. Yes. I was once talking to my colleague, David McFarlane, and I sort of made the point that, common, common enough, you know, I know that I'm conscious, but I don't know that you're conscious. And, and, and he said, I'm not conscious. It rather <laughs> floored me. <laughs> yeah. So actually, there were a few questions on Twitter for us about psychedelics and meditation and whether you have tried either. I know, okay. the, answer to the, I know the answer to the first because I just saw you on Joe Rogan, and I, okay. also, I posed yeah. the question to you uh, maybe a year ago when we were on stage together. I assume you have not dropped acid in the meantime. I haven't, no. Yeah. Uh, so I'm still it, kind of t tempted to in a way. Yeah, yeah. And, well, uh, what are your thoughts about that? I, well, since I haven't done it, I, I don't really have much to say. I was talking the other day to somebody who was recommending something called microdoses, and I, mm -hmm. I don't, don't know what that is. I don't even know what that really is. But. Well, that, so a microdose is just a, as it sounds, a, a much smaller dose than the, what the, does it do? the conventional yeah. dose. So, so if, you, if you're talking about something like LSD, a full dose, something like 100 micrograms or beyond, gives you a fairly spectacular, for better or worse, change in your phenomenology that lasts, you know, 10 or 12 hours. If you take 100 micrograms of LSD, one thing is guaranteed, you will be feeling very unlike the status quo within an hour or so, and you'll stay that way for like 10 hours. A microdose of LSD is something like, you know, one twentieth of a, of a, a real dose, something like five micrograms, will give you a more or less subliminal, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's not nothing. I mean, you, you will feel something very likely, or it's, it's possible you, you'll feel nothing other than more awake along some axis that is not quite the same as having a lot of caffeine. There's a stimulant effect, but it's pointed in a direction that you'll, you may detect as being not yeah. one you've been pointing you in before. You don't get micro bad trips. No, no. I, would, I mean, you, I think the worst case for a microdose would be something like you know, just feeling a little anxious. Like the stimulant effect may yes. kindle some anxiety. Yes. But in the normal case, I would expect you to feel maybe especially clear-headed. Okay. You know, it's like things like the sunlight in the room is a little bit brighter and a little more interesting. But, but than, do you actually write a better book when you're, when you're clear-headed? Yeah, no, I, th I think you might. You know, microdosing of LSD, that's the only thing I've ever microdosed. I would expect most people 
to find it a kind of performance enhancing. And, and this is, I mean, it, it's now, I think, ubiquitous in Silicon Valley that people are microdosing. Yeah, all over the place. Okay. yeah. And, okay. Hence, the, that you, ha you have this meme in your head. I'm sure someone who knew someone yeah. at, at uh, Google yeah. recommended that uh, yeah. they talk yeah. to you about microdosing. Well, I'd, I'd certainly be up for trying that. I would be up for trying a proper dose as well, perhaps. I mean, I was, I was tempted when I read um, The Doors of Perception, Aldous Huxley. Mm -hmm. And I also read, so that's mescaline, not, not, not LSD, but right. I think it's similar. My cousin, John Smithies, who was at um, the Salt Institute in, in San Diego for many years, he, he, I think, actually introduced Aldous Huxley to psychedelics. And oh, so that would have been back in, was that the long, 40s? Long, or? long ago, yeah. yes. And he, in one of, in his book, describes his own mescaline experience, which is similar to Aldous Huxley's. Mm -hmm. I was offered a, a LSD trip by a friend, and I thought about it, and I actually asked my cousin John Smith is whether he recommended it. He said no, hmm. really because of the danger of a bad trip, which he said is so appalling that, that, that it's not worth the risk, Yeah, is what he said. It is. A bad trip is certainly appalling. And there's more of a risk of a bad trip with LSD than with something like MDMA. There are trade-offs here. Now, again, I'm not a clinician. I'm not your doctor. <laughs> take, take all of these yeah, sure. admonitions with a grain of salt. But the truth about LSD is that it is, again, this is now measured in micrograms, right? Not milligrams, which is the normal dose of a normal drug. So it's, it is active in, in a, the tiniest quantity. And it certainly seems to be physiologically benign. I think any argument that, that LSD is, is neurotoxic is, is, I mean, there's, just, there's no, no evidence. No, for no that. permanent effects. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's no, so there's no physical risk with LSD, I'm not even sure where that there's any kind of lethal dose. And there's, you know, there's a lethal dose of water, right? So that's- Of course, the, yeah. So, but there must be something but, between a full dose and a micro dose. I mean, that's yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah. Sort of so yeah, so that's something you could experiment dose. with, mm -hmm. except the prospect of having a very bad time psychologically is there with LSD. So yes. that, like, so, so I, you know, if, if you ever did something like that, I would want you to do it in the presence of a proper guide, sure. you know, uh, who, who could guide you. With something like MDMA, you know, otherwise known as ecstasy, there's much less of a prospect of having a bad time psychologically. And, and it, in truth, it's not actually considered a psychedelic or a hallucinogenic. It doesn't change mm. your perceptual field mm. all that much, or if at all. It's much more of a, an emotional rewriting of your software. So like you, you experience, you, or you can experience something much more in the vein of unconditional love which again is a can be a, a totally thrilling and transformative experience, but it's not it's not in the domain of of having massive perceptual changes, yes. or even changes at the level of your you know ideas. It's not it's not like some okay. kind of on rushing but I thought creativity. Ecstasy did, was likely to have, but yes, yeah, so the, the caveat here is, and again, this is this is research that has been fairly politicized, and I think there is at least one academic fraud polluting our understanding of, of the possible toxicity of, of MDMA, of ecstasy. You know, there, there are people I trust now who think that there is no evidence that it's neurotoxic, but mm. just for, speaking mm. from experience, it seems like it is it's certainly harder on your, your body physiologically. There's kind of a speed component to it, and it's, it can just seem like something that is probably not good for you physiologically and that you, you would want to do this a hundred times. 
there are many psychedelics that introduce experiences that seem to give warrant to religious thinking. Like these are the kinds of experiences you can have where you can readily understand that in the absence of a scientific worldview, or even you know, more likely in the context of a specifically mythological, you know, ancient understanding of the, the, the forces of nature, you have an experience like this, and it would seem to be a massive datum in favor of a magical, mystical interpretation. Yes, I, mean, I, I, I could imagine that in my case, and possibly in yours, it would probably, it would rather than make one think of anything supernatural, enhance one's sort of Carl Sagan-esque feeling of wonder at the universe yeah. and, and, and sort of looking out and glorying in the, in, in the sight of a galaxy, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, we, it, it does that, and it also can, it can bring your experience into closer convergence with things we already understand about the nature of the mind. I mean, so for instance, like, so you, you were just referencing some. The fact that your experience of the world isn't an unmediated experience of the world. What you are, you are experience a, experiencing a kind of user interface where everything you see, you know, the table you can touch, the traffic you can see outside the window, all of this is an appearance. It, it's, it's quite literally a vision yes. being produced by your brain. Yes, right? so you, you, are, you are in your brain, you're in your mind in each moment. You know, stem to stern. Exactly. You know, so this, you know, you're seeing, you're talking to me. Presumably, I exist. You know, it's possible that you could be asleep and dreaming, and you would yeah, wake sure. up and be surprised. Yeah. And even in that case, the difference between being awake and having a truthful perception of some of of someone who actually exists versus being asleep and just dreaming and being in dialogue with a figment of your imagination, neurologically speaking. Those are very similar exactly. states, right? And it's like just the, the state of being awake is just more constrained, as you say, by the inputs to exactly. the nervous system. Yes. So what you discover with psychedelics, and the truth is you can discover this with meditation as well without taking any drug, that there is a there's an impressive range of flexibility within that space to play with the software component of your mind, which is, which again, is basically everything apart from the fact that, you know, gross inputs from the outside world will have to be accounted for, right? But you can, you can change your experience of the world moment to moment. And perhaps most importantly, you can, you can change your disposition to react to the world, to react to the things that you see and the things that people say. And the, I mean, so like, kind of the, the emotional software you're running you can change that to a remarkable degree and just feel very differently about existence moment to moment so this difference between being neurotic and self-absorbed and narcissistic and endlessly judgmental and or being someone very very much like jesus whoever he was or buddha whoever he was someone who's who has worked something out in terms of you know kind of the software level of human psychology such that you can well make sense of how they had such a transfiguring influence on the people who came into contact with them and then i mean again this comes back to the origin of religion then you see okay here are people who are are 
bowling people over with their degree of, of kind of personal freedom and you know philosophical wisdom essentially you know the wisdom of living a good life and yet because you know science isn't even a gleam in the eye of the smartest person i mean like you know even you know archimedes doesn't have it quite at that point all of this gets enshrined mimetically in the context of a worldview that is still talking about you know a personal god yes. or, you know ruling over things or you know reincarnation if you're in the eastern context and so this ain't this perennial wisdom which gets you know renewed and refreshed and occasionally rediscovered by someone like aldous huxley who actually gave us the term the perennial philosophy to name this it tends to come to us kind of thoroughly encumbered and even vitiated by iron age superstition and taboo if you become interested in this range of experience if you had you know taken acid in you know 1967 with with the rest of your friends and become interested in eastern philosophy or you know western mysticism you'd be confronted with all of the religiosity and dogmatism and speciousness of those cultural mimetics and whereas what is really needed is having a thoroughly scientific and rational 21st century conversation about the plasticity of human consciousness and the, and just the, the, the possibilities yes. of living a better life. I was going to ask you how you sort of reconcile. I mean, I know you get a lot of stick for your for your sort of what appear to be mystical le leanings and and yeah, well, in certain in certain quarters, I rarely notice it now, but it's absolutely obvious we have to get out of the religion business, right? There's no reason to be a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Taoist or I mean, like, what you want to be is a sane human being who understands our growing scientific worldview. And insofar as that extends to the human mind, you want to be part of that conversation. But the problem is that, I mean, th this is just a, a very painful and inconvenient and underappreciated asymmetry. There was something that happened in the West that impoverished us on this specific point of thinking about human well-being and living an examined life and, and the prospects of using introspective methodologies there. We lost that somewhere around the time of, we lost it in philosophy, arguably a couple of thousand years ago, where if you go back to the, the Greeks, philosophy really was about wisdom. It was about living a good life. It was about actually changing states of consciousness. I mean, so the, the Stoics and the skeptics and even the cynics, they were essentially mystics in a way. I mean, they, they, they were trying to achieve, you know, eudaimonia or ataraxia or some state of, of tranquility where, you know, you've thought through the problems of life to a point where your, your mind is now imperturbable. There's no question in my mind reading these guys that many of them were experiencing states of consciousness that you know you would experience uh, on something like MDMA or you know the the right cocktail or having practiced various types of meditation but the the methodology of meditation never really got started there as far as i can tell and then in the west we lost you know i blame Abrahamic monotheism for much of this. I mean, so like the, the, the only way to think about spiritual experience or the contemplative life became 
very much an expression of what was happening in Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. And it was explicitly dualistic and faith-based and propitiatory and, you know, punishment-laden view of these things, to which science had to react and divorce itself. And briefly, there was a moment there with people like William James where there was a quasi-contemplative effort to bring introspection into the toolkit of science, right? I mean, especially with somebody like someone like William James. But the problem there was that there was no sophisticated tradition of, in the Eastern sense, practicing meditation. So no one had the, a facility for it, right? So basically, when the average Western intellectual, be he a philosopher or she a scientist, tries to practice introspection, all they do is close their eyes and think about experience, and they're and they're unaware that there's there is a an alternative to merely being lost in thought every moment of their lives. You, you close your eyes and you think, okay, what am I meant to notice here? Okay, well, I can hear sounds and I can feel my body and you know, but I can't even notice that I have a brain, so that's not making much headway in the direction of neurology, right? And you're left merely thinking, and what meditation is is a way of paying sufficiently close attention to that process such that you begin to notice thoughts themselves as mere appearances in consciousness, yeah. right? And, and that's, that's a critical moment, which if you can't cross that bridge, and here the, the kind of the unique potency of psychedelics is that for the average person who is not interested in this or is not going to spend enough time trying to notice thoughts as thoughts, what you have is a drug that basically just you know, steamrolls over your habit patterns of thinking, and you're delivered into the arms of a very different experience. And so, for better or worse, I mean, again, some of these experiences can be unpleasant, but the thing that you come away with is, and this is how so many people in the West became interested in, in meditation in the 60s, because you know, Richard Alpert and Timothy Leary were handing out, you know, LSD to all comers, and you had a generation of people who discovered that whoever they thought they were, whatever they thought the, previous, the, the, the possibilities of living a good life were, they experienced for this period of you know, four hours or eight hours or 10 hours, a complete transfiguration of their minds. And that made one thing undeniable. It, made, it, it proved beyond peradventure that it is possible to have a very different experience of having a human mind. And again, if you, if, you have, if you had a good trip on LSD, there's no question that many of those changes are normative. The experience of coming down from a good LSD trip or a good MDMA trip or a good mushroom trip or mescaline, right, is very much as, as you read in someone like Aldous Huxley, the, the thing you, you are, are losing your purchase on something that was more true, right? It's not just, not just different. There are levels of encumbrance that are re-congealing around you, your, your mind and, and separating you from a clarity of vision that you, before that experience, you didn't know was possible. You're a very persuasive advocate, Sam. I, this, I, this is, I, did, I did try transcendental meditation once. It's right, absolutely right. nothing for me at all. That's not the one I would have recommended. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, right. I mean, I, they gave me a mantra, right? And and in 
and at, at at the same time as a lot of gobbledygook in Sanskrit, I think. Right. And I tried this mantra, and so I shut my eyes and I said the mantra to myself. And all that happened was I heard myself saying the mantra to myself, and, right. and that was it. And, right. And okay, so so I, I didn't know that I was going to do this, but would you be willing to meditate with me for five minutes just okay. to, to explore this? Because there, there are many misunderstandings about meditation, and some of them are born of the fact that you know, people get recommended things like TM, and that presents several impediments, especially to a skeptic like yourself. First, you're, you're given a mantra, which is a Sanskrit phrase, you know, it's an explicit export from Hinduism, and you're told some gobbledygook about the significance of this phrase. And the first question for you as a skeptic is, what's the significance of the Sanskrit and why adopt this in the first place? And what's the utility of just repeating this thing over and over again? And it's not to say that mantra meditation can't work for something, but it's there's a starting point that should strike you, I think will strike you as totally empirical and requires no faith placing in anything. The only faith really is the faith of a, a scientific hypothesis, which is if there's something that's interesting to discover about the nature of your mind in this moment from the first person side, paying closer attention would be an appropriate method to discovering that thing. So now I would just ask you to, to close your eyes and just listen to the sounds in the room. And you can also feel your body resting in space. Just feel the weight of your back against the chair and of your hands resting on your legs. And notice that consciousness is simply this condition in which everything is appearing. So again, sounds and sensations in the body, and also thoughts themselves and emotions and your background mood, or whether you feel restless or tired or happy. Anything you can notice is an appearance in this same condition of conscious awareness. And take your sensation of having a body, for instance. See if you can pay close enough attention to the raw sensations themselves such that you relinquish the shape of your body. So you might notice this with your hands. You feel pressure and tingling and temperature. And if you feel these raw sensations closely enough, you can actually relinquish the shape of your hands. You don't feel fingers and palm. You just feel a far more punctate and changing cloud of sensations. 
And this is true of your legs and your shoulders. And though your eyes are closed, I would actually remind you that you still have a visual field. You can gaze into the darkness of your closed eyes and notice that it's not quite dark, right? There's an iridescence there. There are even some scintillating lights, very likely. And as a field of view, it is actually undefined. It is a kind of sky-like openness that you can just gaze into. And every time you notice that your mind is lost in thought, you might notice thoughts competing for your attention here. Just see if you can notice the thought itself unravel and come back to raw sensations in the body or changes in your visual field or sounds. And if you notice anything unpleasant, you might notice aches or pains in your body. See if you can notice just that valence of unpleasantness and just let that be as it is. There are pleasant things, there are unpleasant things. Consciousness itself is not really changed. Consciousness is merely the space in which all of these things are appearing. So now normally I, I wouldn't be talking quite this much and I wouldn't be giving you so much information, but I just want to give you the lay of the land here. So this is a more discursive tour of your mind. So I want you to notice that as you pay attention to sounds and sensations, you very likely feel that you are the one who's attending, right? You are a locus of attention, very likely in your head, that can pay attention to the objects of consciousness in a strategic way, right? So I can say, I want you to feel the sensations in your hands now. And as you do that, and you pay very close attention to whatever's there, pressure, tingling, you might feel like you're up above your hands, you're in your head, aiming attention down at the sensations. That's actually a false position. That is an illusion. And when you hear that meditation culminates in something like self-transcendence or, you know, the, the revelation that the ego is an illusion, this is where that discovery is made. There's the sense of subject-object dualism, which you can cut through. 
And you can cut through it in one of two ways. You can pay such close attention to the objects of consciousness. So again, like the feeling in your hands or a sound that when you notice the next appearance in consciousness, the next sound, the next sensation, there can be for that moment just the noticing. There can be just the pressure or just the sound impinging on consciousness. And you lose the feeling of there being a one who knows it. There's just a unity of consciousness and its object. And that's an experience that you can have if you just pay close enough attention to sensations and sounds, or even thoughts. But you can also look for this sense of self directly. You can look for the sense of that there's a subject in the head. And that can seem somewhat paradoxical, but you can do it and actually fail to find it in a way that is conclusive, so that then consciousness really seems to be without a a subject in the head. You know, there is no homunculus up there aiming attention at things. And so I, I just kind of point you to where that discovery would be had. So you might notice that you feel like you're, as a subject, as a locus of consciousness, in your head right now. And so that means you're behind your face. So I'd ask you to feel the sensations of your face right now. Feel whatever it is in consciousness that tells you that you even have a face. Again, feelings of pressure or tightness or temperature. And you might also feel that you have a back of your head, right? How is it that you know that there's a back to your head? So you can feel that closely. And you might alternate again to the feeling of your face. And as you do that, I would point out that from the point of view of consciousness, you are not behind your face, and you're not in front of the back of your head. Right? Both of these things are merely appearing in consciousness. The only evidence of having a face or having a head are sensations now appearing in consciousness. This doesn't mean that consciousness isn't a product of your brain. Um, again, I'm talking purely from the first-person side. These are not metaphysical claims about consciousness subsuming the entire universe. But I'm saying from the point of view of consciousness, empirically, from the experience side of what it's like to be you, anything you can notice, including the feeling of having a head, is simply appearing in consciousness in this moment. So consciousness is, is a prior condition. And if you keep dropping back into what that feels like, just this open space in which everything is appearing, you can notice that it doesn't feel like a self. It doesn't feel like I. 
doesn't feel like me, is simply this open and unstructured space in which the next thought, the next emotion, the next intention, the next sound will appear all on its own. And again, as you fall back into this more and more, you can begin to notice that the concept of free will doesn't make any sense because, again, the next thought simply appears. From the point of view of consciousness, there's not a direct authorship of any of this. If you have free will, it should extend to many things in this space, right? So let's look for it. Notice the next sound you hear. Notice that it just appears, and you can't decide whether or not to hear it, right? You have exactly zero freedom here. You will either hear it or you won't. You won't be able to account for when you do hear the traffic and when you forget about it. You can't hold on to one of these sounds for a moment longer than it appears. And so it is with the next thought, right? You might have noticed various thoughts appear, right? You might think, well, how long is this going to go on for? Surely this is more than five minutes. Sam is banging on about this. That too just appears in consciousness. There's no place the conscious witness was standing to author that thought. Now you can open your eyes. What I was showing you there is a kind of awareness that's just called mindfulness, right? Which is just paying very close attention to the flow of experience. And, you know, I have done retreats where all you do for 18 hours a day is that. You're in silence for 24 hours a day, and you're spending every waking moment trying to pay closer and closer attention to the flow of conscious experience. And I've met people who have spent 20 years like that in silence on retreat. And I've spent, you know, in my 20s, I spent close to two years like that, you know, in, in increments of, you know, one I month and three months. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand it. Yeah. So now I want to hear your, about your experience. What were you experiencing here that suggested well, that you I, couldn't I was stand listening it? to your words and I was, I was keeping my eyes shut and I was doing everything you said. I couldn't see the point of it. What is the experience of not seeing the point of it? You're thinking, right? You're th you're, yeah. you're, in each of those moments, you're thinking and you're not noticing that you're thinking. So you'll think, what's the point of this? Well, I, I was thinking, I was, I was aware that I was thinking. I was, think, I was aware of my thoughts. I was aware that the thoughts came into my head. I suppose I felt, that, mm, yeah, I mean, I, I, wasn't, I, I, I wasn't bored. I wasn't, I wasn't but I, I would be for 24 hours. And, you know, five minutes would be about my limit, I think. All right. Well, you might need a microdose. <laughs> or even yes. a macrodose. Yes. Okay. Well, just to give you the, again, the kind of the architecture of your doubts here, the default state for all of us is to be thinking without knowing that we're thinking. And of course, we, it, when asked, we have a kind of a vague awareness that we're thinking a lot. So you could say, yeah, I, I was aware of it. I, I was aware that I was thinking, but I couldn't really see the point of it. The more fine grained description of what's happening is that 
thoughts are continually arising yes. and they feel like ourselves. I presume you feel like you have a self, right? You feel like you're a subject of your yes. experience. You're yeah. in the middle of experience, yes. right? And that's what it feels like to be identified with thought. To have a thought come up as though from behind you and seem to be you. You know, I say something and you think, well, what does that mean? That just that bit of language in the mind, what does that mean? And the attitude behind it, the kind of the emotional component of it, the feeling of doubt, say, or uncertainty, the default state is to see no space around that, right? Consciousness is trimmed down to mere identity with that. And it is actually somewhat analogous to being asleep and dreaming, yes. right? It's like, so when, when we're asleep and dreaming, we are totally confused about our circumstance. I mean, we're safely in our beds but we are actually psychotically... I go insane. Yeah, you're, you're completely, you're insane. psychotic, yes. Yeah. The only difference between being psychotic and being asleep and dreaming is that happily, your motor system is suppressed and you yeah. can't get up and act out yeah. these delusions. But you are talking to people who aren't there yes. when you're asleep or, and dreaming. Or who are dead. Or, 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 exactly, yeah. yeah. So in our waking life, our default state is impressively like that in the sense that we're talking to ourselves in a way that, often implies a structure, a dualistic structure to the conversation that is frankly bizarre. And there's a di discursivity that we have internalized that is, in many respects, a, a conversation between the I and the me, and neither of them are there. Let's say I'm packing up to get out of here, and I'll look around from my phone, and I may actually internalize in the voice of my own mind. I might say, Where's my phone? Now, I know I'm looking for my phone, right? Who am I talking to? So there's yes. a, a, a superfluousness to much of what we say to ourselves. Now, it's not to say that there's no utility to thinking. I mean, obviously, mo you know, almost everything that makes us human requires our ability to think and plan. But as you persist in the methodology I was just introducing you to, you begin to notice this kind of white noise of the automaticity of thought, and you begin to notice that consciousness is a larger space in which ultimately thoughts themselves can be recognized as they arise, as just appearances in consciousness. And then you begin to feel that there's a very different implication to thought. I mean, there can actually be no implication. So then a thought that normally would lead to anxiety you can just see it arise and pass away. It has no more implication for your state of mind than my speaking the words yes. that, would, that would produce anxiety you know, in me out loud to you, and you just hear them. When you're listening to me speak now, you're hearing my thoughts externalized. They don't feel like your thoughts. No. They're not defining your conscious states. And you could, you could create a similar relationship to your own thoughts in a way that First of all, it gives you just at least one more degree of freedom where you can decide, you can literally decide, okay, how long do I want to be angry for? Right? Something will make you angry. You'll be thinking the thoughts that seem to be encouraging anger. And then you notice this kindling of emotion based on this conversation you're having with yourself. And you can actually just decide to let go of it. Yes, you're finally right. coming on to, I mean, I was going to say that what I've Heard you say I found philosophically interesting, but I didn't really see the point. Where does it get you? And you're now talking about where it does get you. And um, 
I sort of could imagine that. I, I'm not sure I could imagine spending 10 years doing it 24 hours. I mean, I wouldn't have thought it was worth it. I'd rather get on with thinking about something constructive. Well, so I'm not saying that there's not more to do in life, but when you recognize that your experience of, of well-being in each moment, and even the well-being you might experience in the process of writing a book and in the, you know, yes. the knock-on effects of having written it yeah. and now, now then talking to an audience that has read it, what you have in each moment is just consciousness and its contents. The default state for all of us is to be merely identified with thought and therefore we are the mere hostage of whatever those thoughts happen to be. So if you're thinking the thoughts that would make you anxious or embarrassed or regretful or judgmental, or whatever, there'll be absolutely no daylight between those thoughts and your mere captivity to those states of mind. And it will last as long as it lasts, in your case, based on the whims of you know, whatever's well, I, happening I, in I your environment. I had a thought which, which arose out of what, what you were saying, maybe totally irrelevant. I was, somebody made what to me was a horrific suggestion that when you have a certain kind of anesthetic, say when you're being operated on, hmm. it doesn't actually stop you feeling the pain. It just makes you forget it. Now, suppose that were true. Right. That would, that would make me feel horrified at the thought of going into an operation because I'd, thought, I'd have thought... You'll be tortured for I'd be six tortured, hours. Yeah. Even yeah. though I'd forget about it. But then, on the other hand, if I forget about it, completely, then it would, I would no more be suffering than if I think about somebody else being, being ta mm. tortured. It's somebody else's pain. Yeah. Well, that, th this, this opens on to the fascinating and paradoxical question of personal identity. And, yes. And, and what suffices to make it true that you are the same person exactly. who, who you were yesterday. Exactly. And what just what psychological continuity yes. means. And there are genuine paradoxes there. I don't know. Did you did you ever know Derek Parfit? He was yes. at Oxford. Did, yes. did you spend time with him? Not a lot. I met him a couple of times. I liked him enormously. Yeah, a fascinating yes. philosopher. And, yes. and he did the, you know what I consider the most interesting work on on this topic. Yes. And he actually arrived by his own lights. You know, I think totally uninfluenced by Buddhism at a very Buddhist uh -huh. view of, of personal identity and, and yes. the nature of the self, which you can. Our listeners can find in, in his book, Reasons and Persons, which I really think is a masterpiece. But the point of all this, to get to your, your main doubt, is that consciousness in and of itself, in the midst of any experience, is truly free of the usual problems and, and sense of suffering and struggle we go through life with most of the time. Even in the midst of a classically negative experience. Well, once you know how to meditate, once you actually know, or you've discovered, and again, the, the, the language here is confusing because meditation really isn't a thing you're doing. It's a thing you're ceasing to do. You're ceasing to be distracted by thought in each moment. And you're then left with whatever is appearing in consciousness, sounds, sensations, thoughts themselves. In the end, it's actually not a practice. It's, it's, it's just, just a recognition of the kind of the nature of, of mind in each moment. But once you have a capacity to make that recognition, then you can be in the midst of a classically negative experience. Like you can be extremely nauseated and about to vomit. Uh, you've caught a bad case of the flu or food poisoning. So 
everything about your your sensory experience is basically unpleasant in that moment. And you can recognize that consciousness is simply the condition in which all of these negative appearances are appearing. And at the most basic level, it doesn't take the shape of those experiences. I mean, these are these then become like images in a mirror where the mirror isn't deformed by the ugliness that has, it's reflecting in that moment. And in fact, has on some level no preference for beauty or ugliness, right? It's just the mirror is just the kind of the luminous condition in which anything could be reflected. So paradoxically, you can be totally free of suffering even in the midst of an extremely unpleasant experience that you, in, in a moment of being identified with it, would be desperate to change. As though somebody else's experience the nausea and not, not you, or, or well, shoving it off onto, onto another. Well, well but there, there is no, no one in the first place, right? No. There is just this open space in which everything's appearing subjectively. It's like, what's the good of cutting through the illusion of the self in the head? It's that it opens the door to a kind of tranquility and equanimity that you don't have to permanently inhabit, and you're very likely, no matter how much you practice, won't permanently inhabit, but you can find it whenever you can remember so, to find so it. So if you are experiencing an unpleasant nausea or something like that, can you immediately get rid of, the, of, the, of it, or do you have to then start meditating meanwhile you've been... No, no you, can, you can immediately get rid of the sense that your okay. well-being is contingent upon anything about your okay. experience changing, yeah, right? Yeah. So like, so, I mean, this is the paradox. You can be completely at peace, even in the presence of extreme nausea or extreme pain. The consciousness that's aware of nausea is exactly the same consciousness that's aware of the, the most pleasant taste you've ever experienced, right? So it's, so meditation as a, as a training is just becoming more and more familiar with what consciousness is like before it gets entangled by thought and before you react to the positive or negative valence of experience, you know, grasping at what's positive or pushing what's negative away. It's just a direct search for tranquility. And again, the, you know, the ancient Greeks were talking about this in their own way. They just didn't seem to have much of a methodology for training attention. They just, they were kind of arriving at it by philosophical. Well, reflection. I'm tempted and skeptical at the same time. So, right. So. This is why. Uh, many of us, and I, I'm included, required psychedelics to have our doubts canceled. Because, yeah. like, so you, you're left thinking, well, I, I'm wondering if there's a there there. But the one thing that, that a good acid trip or, or MDMA trip would prove to you, and again, they're, they're very different, but they would prove to you in, in, to a similar degree that there's a positive range of experience. I mean, there are feelings of well being that are not contingent upon any change in the world apart from a change in your capacity to attend to the world. So it's really at the level of attention, because of what you're doing with your mind moment to moment, that are totally transformative on the, the value level of what is good about mm. being alive mm. and what is good about mm. you know, having a mind in the first place. But uh, so, okay, so to come back to Earth here and close on uh, a topic I know is dear to your heart. So just tell me and our listeners, what you're doing now with respect to the efforts of your foundation and it's, it's oh, merging okay. with the, the Center um, for Inquiry. Yes, and... well, the, my foundation merged with the Center for Inquiry about two or three years ago, and our director, Robert Blumner, became the director of the whole enterprise. I mean, we, we, we stand for reason and science 
and secularism, various practical things we're doing at the moment are, well, we're conducting a lawsuit against um, homeopathy. Uh, who, who does one sue for well, that lawsuit? Um, shops that sell homeopathic medicines alongside legitimate tested medicines, mm-hmm. as though there were no, no difference between them. So you, we, we, we would have no objection to their having an aisle labeled homeopathic medicines, but in fact, they have an aisle labeled coughs or flu. Or right. And they're mingled among the real and remedies. Among them. Yeah. And the homeopathic medicines have sort of fancy sounding names. So it's impossible to tell. Oh, yeah. Silicoxinum, um, I think is what yeah, all that, yeah. All that sort of stuff. And, and I mean, homeopathy is a good one to pick because there may be alternative medicines that work, in which case they cease to be alternative. But homeopathy not only doesn't work, it cannot work because the dosages are... Yeah. The, the, they okay. say that the more dilute it is, the more, the more effective it gets, which means that ultimately... I mean, James Randi calculated that the most effective dose of all according to homeopaths is one in which there's one molecule in a volume of water equal to the volume of the solar system. Right, right. Well, and hence the joke that uh, you took nothing at all and died of an died overdose. Died of an overdose, right. yeah, exactly. So that, that's one thing. Another thing is, well, there are two things related to the uh, Islamic world. One of them is the translation project, where we are providing free of charge PDFs, which can be downloaded in Arabic, Urdu, Farsi, and oh, Indonesian. These are uh, like the God Delusion and... God Delusion... Magic of reality, uh, I forget which other ones, maybe the magic of reality, mm-hmm. and maybe, I, I forget which, which ones they are. I mean, you might come knocking on your door. And, and... Yeah, well, actually, so the, do you know uh, Faisal Saeed Amutar? Yes, he's so, doing the same thing. Yeah, so yeah. He, he's done that with some of my books, so yes, Ideas yes. Beyond Borders. Well, I think it's, it's very important because I get, you know, our, our project started with the astonishing fact, which we were told, that a bootlegged, Arabic translation of the God Delusion has been downloaded 13 million times. Yeah, amazing. And that's very encouraging. And I do I expect you also get sort of whisperings of, of, um, of encouragement from places like Egypt and, yeah. and um, Saudi Arabia and Iran, that there is a sort of groundswell of anti-religion in those places. So that's another of the projects. Another one is Secular Rescue, which is an attempt to provide a sort of underground railway to rescue bloggers, atheistic bloggers in places like Bangladesh and Pakistan. Oh, nice. So, so what is that when you say rescue? What are it's we not exactly mean? a Scarlet Pimpernel type drive in mm-hmm. and seize them and carry them off. It's it's more sorting out legal problems, um, visas and, right. and money, oh, and that's great. And safe safe houses to go to and that kind of thing. And that's, I think, saved, actually, it's quite a lot of, literally saved quite a lot of lives. So th- those are the kinds of things that we happen to be doing at the moment. But really anything that involves the fostering of reason and science, objective truth, which is really necessary just at the moment, especially yeah. in America and Britain. And um, I sort of feel that more than ever in this country under Trump, we do need to fight for objective truth to fight for science, climate change, uh, yeah. anti-vaxxers, all these sorts of things which are politically highly charged and which, in, in which scientific reason is at the forefront of the battle. Yeah, well, so it's somewhat strange because 
Trump has totally eclipsed, I mean, I'm now speaking personally, my concern about theocracy in the U.S., right? I mean, the machinations of, of Christian fundamentalists are as far from my mind as possible. And in fact, you know, my hoping for him, his impeachment is synonymous with my hoping that a proper theocrat, Mike Pence, would then be brought <laughs> yes. into the Oval Office, yes. right? You know, and then I, I mean, hopefully would reactivate yes. the rest I mean, of my brain at, at where at I would realize he's, how he's not, he's not an, an, a narcissistic fool. Yeah, but so it's 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 like there are problems bigger than religious dogmatism, which is I just fear there are now. Yes, the rank madness of a dysregulated mind. Yes, but we're living in an environment now where people have become so cynical around the nature of facts, right? Or even the, the, the prospect of having a fact-based discussion. And so many people just seem happy to be fed tribal delusions that are they view as supportive of their side. So it's just like people traffic in conspiracy theories that I'm not even sure they believe just because they just want to clog the airwaves with, yes. with, with these ideas. I think ideas. the tribalism is very important. And, and I think so often people believe something, not because they've seen the evidence, because our tribe believes that, yeah. or their tribe believe, uh, doesn't, doesn't believe that. And, and Bill Maher had a good thing about um, the, Trump, the Trumpers actually are partly motivated by, by visceral hatred of liberals. I mean, you know, they, they just loathe us. Yeah. And, and it doesn't help when we do things like, when I say oh, we, I mean, our side does things like Deplatform people for Islamophobia yeah. and that that kind of stuff. I mean that that just feeds into the the hate the hatred. Of, you know, no and, doubt. And I've spent almost as much time worrying about the left as the right. I know. At this point yes. Because it's yeah. just it's so dysfunctional. Yes. And 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 if for no other reason that it seems guaranteed to give us four more years of Trump and exactly. and continued populism in Europe. And yes, I really fear we're we're our own worst enemies and, and feeding into their their hatred. Well, there were many more questions, Richard, but now I realize I've kept you for um, a good long while. Is there anything we haven't touched that you want us I to? I don't think so. It's been fascinating. Okay. And um, Do you want to yeah. whinge about Brexit for a few minutes? or do you No, I do too much that? of that. Okay. I mean, I'm still hopeful that it won't happen. I, mean, I think, I think we might be good. I think quite likely we're going to have a second referendum. Really? Oh, Some would say a first referendum because the, because the other one was based upon no proper information at right. all. And right. Now right. we actually know what Brexit's yes, going to be yes. like. Presumably people won't be Googling what is Brexit after, no, after that's the right. referendum. That's right, yes. Yeah. So a real referendum where people actually know, know, I don't think we should, I don't believe in referendums at all, actually. But I yeah. think that a complicated issue like joining the, or not leaving the European Union is a, a matter of great economic sophistication which should not be left to ordinary, ordinary people like me. But given that we did it the first time, the only way to get out of it is to do it the second time. And, and I'm very hopeful that that's going to happen. And, and that seems likely. I haven't kept up with the news. I, I, I likely is putting it strongly, but, huh. um, but I think it's, well, it's possible. And I mean, and, and yeah, more than just possible. I mean, and do you think the outcome would be different? Yes, I do. Now that people have seen. I mean, are, there, are there polls now that yes, po the, indicate the, 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 the that a referendum would Yes, the Polls suggest that Remain would win now. Right. Interesting. All right. Well, um, listen, it's such a pleasure to see you. It, it, well, doesn't, happen, it doesn't happen enough. So. Likewise, yes. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming to, to see me rather than the other way around. Yeah, yeah. The pleasure is mine. Okay. 
Well, as I said there, there's a reason why many of us required the lever of psychedelics to um, first pry open our minds. Honestly, I don't know what I would have thought had someone introduced me to meditation without having had the experiences I had with psychedelics. If you don't have a reference point for seeing just how different the mind can be when the nature of your attention to the present moment changes, it's hard. I'd like to say a few things about skepticism with respect to the project of meditation, because it can be easy to fall into doubt about the practice before one has had any real insight that uh, seems durable and useful. The first thing to notice is that meditation as a concept is quite obviously contaminated with its religious origins. There are good reasons to be skeptical about organized religion. There's certainly good reason to be skeptical that any previous generation, especially any generation that appeared 2,000 years ago, had a perfectly clear picture of what's going on in the universe and how we should live within it. So skepticism is the right attitude, surely, with respect to any ideas we've inherited. And in more recent years, meditation has become associated with incense and crystals and tarot cards and everything you find in a spiritual bookstore. It's also been more recently goopified by celebrity endorsements and its adoption among tech CEOs, and indeed its inclusion in apps of the sort that I've produced with the Waking Up app. And these associations can suggest that it is merely trendy or otherwise superficial. Here's the intellectual starting point I would recommend to you, which I think cuts through any skepticism. If you want to see whether there are any interesting discoveries to be made about the nature of your own mind directly from the first-person side, it makes sense to pay more attention to it. Whatever we want to know more about, paying more attention is always the method. And the moment you try to pay attention to your direct experience, you'll discover that it's surprisingly difficult to do. And that should be interesting to you. Now granted, in the very beginning, you might not notice that that's your condition. You might be under the illusion that you can spend minutes at a time paying undistracted attention. But provided that you can make this initial discovery and recognize that your mind is out of control, that should interest you. If for no other reason than the character of that distraction so much of the time is painful. What do you think you're spending all your time thinking about? You must have a vague sense that this can't be an ideal condition to be in. So the promise here is that there's something to discover about the nature of your own mind that leads directly to the mitigation of psychological suffering, as well as to other insights that are intellectually and ethically interesting. But the only thing you need concede to get started is that if there were something to discover here, the way to find out is to pay more careful attention. And attempting that, you notice that this is not your default state. 
your default state rather is to be thinking without knowing that you're thinking. And that will either interest you or not. You can really proceed very much in the spirit of an explorer or a scientist, simply paying attention on the odd chance that there's something of interest to see. And with that, I will leave you. Until next time. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, like my Ask Me Anything episodes, as well as the bonus questions from many of these interviews. You'll also get advanced tickets to my live events. You'll find all of these things and more at samharris.org. And thank you for supporting the show. Listeners like you make it possible.